Welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I'm the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. Happy to be with you this week to discuss a topic that's always interesting, and that is underwriting. This week, we're going to be talking about chasing the underwrite. And when we do an underwrite for an acquisition, we, we want to do that using conservative inputs and lots of data. That's really what makes an acquisition successful, is being well grounded in the underwriting. But you have to be careful. You can get trapped in a situation that we call chasing the underwrite. And what we want to talk about this week is how we avoid doing that. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapoling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. And please do not hesitate to swing by the website, check out all the great content there at the Learning Center, download some information about uh, Mara Poling, about our Mara Poling Total Return Fund, and about uh, multifamily real estate investing in general. Okay, with that, let's get to the meat of the matter for the week, chasing the underwrite. Well, what is an underwrite? So if you're, if you're new to the channel or new to multifamily investing, whether you're a, a passive investor looking to invest with sponsors, um, myself and Bill or someone like us, uh, or if you're building your own portfolio, underwriting is the process of essentially putting together a financial forecast based on a number of inputs that allow you to then model how the asset would perform. Underwriting is important not only to be able to see if your plan makes any sense financially, but to then have a tool that you can use to go through a number of different scenarios so that you can test out what if this were to happen or what if this didn't happen. and. The results from each of those, not only the returns it generates, but also some of the information about how the asset performs in certain stress test environments. All of that is really valuable. And ultimately, during the acquisition phase, it gives us at Mara Polling, it gives us the data we need to be able to make a intelligent offer on a property and most importantly to know when to stop when we get to a not to exceed number that doesn't make any sense for us beyond that. So underwriting is very valuable. We focus on doing underwriting using very conservative inputs, or at least what we think are conservative inputs. Talk about that more in a minute. And data. As much data as we can get our hands on so that we're not dealing with uh, seat of the pants supposition guesses, right? So we want to do those things. That we think provides a very solid foundation for an underwrite so you can have a successful acquisition. It is easy, very tempting, to fall into the trap of chasing the underwrite. And what I mean by that is taking those data-based inputs, those conservative inputs, and convincing yourself that, well, you know what, I bet we could do a little better here or a little better there. And the next thing you know, you've got an asset that performs really well, but is it really going to perform that well? Because you've taken some of the conservatism out of the underwrite. So let's talk about conservative inputs. That's a good place to start this. If 
uh, and I always like using rents. Uh, you can use this for lots of inputs, but let's let's use rents. Go out, you do a study, and you see that on average, other properties that have the same size units in the same type of condition, so same amenity set and so on, they're getting $50 a month on average more than we're getting. So we could underwrite $50. Now I said that's on average. Some of those competitors are getting $60 or $70. Some of them maybe are only getting $40. A conservative underwrite would be to underwrite maybe $30 or $35. Really high confidence there. Maybe an 80% confidence level that that's going to happen and only a 20% downside that it wouldn't. You could also underwrite 50, and there's a very good argument for that, right? Hey, that's what the average is out in the marketplace. We think we're going to have a property that actually can perform above average. So uh, 50 is not an unreasonable number. And I think you can make an argument for that. If you do put 50 in, you're kind of making the play of, I've got a 50% chance that I might come up short of that. But I've also got a 50% chance that I could do better than that because I'm kind of in the middle. Again, we said average rent. It's not median. If you were really going to do the analysis more statistically, you might use medians. But for our purposes, average works just fine. Now, chasing the underwrite would be a scenario where we would say, well, our property is actually nicer than those other properties. And we're going to be doing some things to actually improve it so that we'll actually be on the very high end. We'll, we'll be able to compete with that very high-end property. So out of maybe six different competing properties, what you end up finding is one that's getting not $50, not $70, but they're getting $100 more than you are. You say, oh, we can do exactly what they're doing. Now, is that unrealistic? No, it's not. That's a real possibility. And operationally, that may absolutely be the target that you want to set for the team. From an underwriting standpoint, though, does it make sense to put all your eggs, if you will, in that one basket and say, okay, we are going to match the rents of the highest performing property in the market? Again, achievable. Maybe you could exceed it, right? But I'd say it's this becomes more, it's not 80-20, where you get an 80% chance of hitting that number. It's not 50-50. This is probably flipped 20-80. There's a 20% chance that you're actually going to be able to hit that number and an 80% likelihood that you're going to come up short. So now my underwrite has a bug in it. Now when I'm looking at all the rest of the inputs, everything's being colored by the fact that I'm being aggressive on this rent number. So why would you do that? Why would you put that in? Well, typically what happens is this, is you do the conservative underwriting the correct way. You go out and get the comp studies and get all the data, uh, use all the tools that we have at our uh, disposal, and you build the underwrite. And then what you see is that the asset isn't performing well enough to support the price that the seller has said they want. Now, just because a seller says they want $100,000 a unit, as an example, 
doesn't mean it's worth 100,000 a unit. It might be worth more, it might be worth less, it might actually be worth $100,000 a unit. You don't know until you do the underwrite. If when you do the underwrite, it's only worth $80,000 a unit, well, one of the reasons you might nudge that rent number is you're trying to, well, how, how close could I get to his number? What, what if I was able to get these really high rents? What if I was able to match that top performer in the market? Maybe that gets you to 85000 a door. Okay, I'm still a little short. And this is now where you're really full-on chasing the underwrite. So you move not only from rents, but now you look at vacancy. And you say, gee, the current owner is running 10% total vacancy. And remember, that's physical vacancy, concessions, and, and write-offs, bad debt. He's running 10%. The market is running 6%. Oh, well, we can get to 6% and you put 6% in and you put 6% in day one as though instantaneously upon close of acquisition, the property is going to significantly change its performance. Could that happen? I guess it could. Not quite sure the scenario. Could it happen quickly, like within a few months? Yeah, that's possible. But again, put your 80-20 hat on. We want to be in a position where we've got an 80% likelihood of our input being correct and it being achieved and only a 20% downside. You know, that might be something where you'd say, you know what, that's going to take six months or a year. And that's impacted by any work you might be doing. So if you're going to be doing value-add work, as an example, you're going to not only have units offline for the work, but you're going to be moving rents more significantly, and that generally means a bit of a spike in your total vacancy number. So instead of underwriting 6% or 8% or even the 10% they're currently at, it might make sense to underwrite 10 or 11 or 12% for the first six months or a year and then begin a downward trend. But again, if you do that, maybe you only get that $80,000 a door value, so you put the 6% in right away. Well, maybe that gets you to 90000 a door. Okay, we're getting there. I like that. Then you move on and say, okay, well, let's look at value add. What, what are we planning? So maybe it's a, a $8,000 a door improvement. So it's appliances and flooring and lighting and uh, maybe some cabinet, uh, cabinet work, uh, plumbing fixtures, some things along those lines. And I'm going to move rents 15%. Well, okay, great. What if I said, all right, well, maybe I can do that for $6,500, not 8,000. And what if I could move the rents 20%? And again, maybe somebody out there in the marketplace has done something that looks like that. Maybe your contractors will tell you, yeah, we can do it for that kind of a number. But we would look at our data. What's our historical been for what it's cost to done that, do that kind of work? Uh, what is the market actually getting for that level of improvements? And again, with our 80-20 hats on, we want to pick some numbers that if, you know, if the market's getting um, a 
15% increase, that that's what it works out to, maybe we underwrite 10, 11, 12%, something that we can have a high degree of confidence in. But in this scenario, because we're chasing the underwrite, we put down 20% rent movement and we pull the CapEx back to 6,500 a door from 8,000. Now we're up to $95,000 a door. Wow, we're almost at the number this seller said they wanted. So we move off of the revenue side and we go look at operating expenses. We say, well, we can't do much with utilities. They're, they're fixed. Insurance is not only going to be what it is, but you know we're going to have that number before we close. So it's not really a guess. We're going to have a real quote on that. The same with our debt. So, you know, I know what that is. And I know what the management fee is going to be because I've negotiated that contract with the management company. So those, those aren't estimates or forecasts. Those are real numbers that I know what they're going to be. But let's see, what else is on there? How about taxes? You know, we don't know what the property is going to be assessed at. Uh, if it's currently uh, assessed at maybe 40% of what this purchase price would be, then, uh, you know, a conservative underwriting would say, we'll take that up to 65 or 70 or 75% of um, the purchase price. You could even go to 90% in some markets because some markets are going to be a little more aggressive in terms of how the assessor works. But if I'm trying to chase the underwrite, because I'm really trying to get to that $100,000 number, I might say, well, maybe it's only 50%. Or maybe they won't reassess at all. You know, they don't always reassess. Let's just assume they don't reassess and our taxes stay flat. Flat with what they are currently for the current owner. And that, lo and behold, gets us to $100,000 a door. And so now we look at our underwrite and we go, fantastic, we can buy this. The seller's willing to sell it for 100000 a door, and we can buy it. We've got an underwrite that supports that. Is that underwrite possible? Could that underwrite actually occur? Absolutely, it could. If you can get the rents at the very high end of what the market is, but somebody is getting those, so it's possible that you could achieve those. If you could improve vacancy to match the rest of the market and do it extremely quickly, if not almost instantaneously, that's kind of possible. If you could do the value-add improvements 20% more efficiently than you've done them previously and get a larger rent bump than what the market says you could get for these because you're going to do such a great job even though you're spending less money. Could that happen? Maybe it could. And could you get away with having taxes assessed very lowly or maybe not even reassessed? Sure, that's a possibility. Now, when you do all that, you get to the $100,000 number. Well, what was I doing when I was doing all that, when I was chasing the underwrite? I was fixated on the $100,000, on the fact that the seller said, I want $100,000 a unit. Well, that's great. I want to be the king of England. <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen. Uh, it doesn't matter what the seller says they want. If the seller is committed and says, I need $100,000 a door, otherwise it doesn't make sense for me to sell, 
and we can't get there using proper underwriting, then we shouldn't buy it. And by the way, some sellers are going to come up with 100000 because they heard somebody else sold and that they got that price. Some are going to come up with it because it's a nice round number. 100000 is a nice round number. A lot of them, and we would certainly do this, come up with it because they've done the math themselves. They know what price they need to get in order to make it worthwhile for them to sell. And that's how they got to 100. Just because that was their math doesn't mean that needs to be our math. So if we chase the underwrite, we potentially have challenges that are going to crop up later when we own the asset. For example, we start trying to move rents more aggressively because we committed to being at the top end of the market. Well, what might that cause? That might cause vacancy to increase. Well, that's the exact opposite of what we underwrote. So now I'm maybe getting close to my rent number, but now I'm not only missing my vacancy target because I was aggressive with it in the first place, but I'm missing it by even more. So my vacancy is spiking from, instead of from 10 down to 6%, it's going 10, 11, 12%. I'm trying to be frugal on my capital improvements, on my upgrades. And what I'm finding is I'm not only not getting the rents, but I'm having to go back and redo some of the work because I had to hire less expensive contractors to do some of the work or use uh, lower quality materials in order to do the work. And I actually end up spending more per unit than if I had just done it the way I originally planned. Because what I've done is I've bought $80,000 units, but I paid $100,000 for them. And as I try to now implement this underwrite, I'm going to make it worse. It almost would have been better off just overpaying for them, but then just implementing a smart plan of rent movement and vacancy management and value add work and so on. But I've compounded it by actually trying to achieve these very aggressive elements that went into the underwrite. So why would anybody do that, right? That sounds like a terrible scenario. Um, why would anybody do it? Well, as I said, it's tempting. And number two, it's actually part of the underwriting process to game out some of those scenarios. When we do an underwrite, we will look at, after we get our base underwrite put together, we will look at, well, what would happen if we got vacancy down to where the rest of the market is? What if we actually hit that number? Now, that doesn't mean we're changing the price we're willing to pay. We're seeing what happens to our return profile and our stress tests. And what we're going to see is, oh, that's, that's a nice bit of input. So we'll see that. And we put that back to zero, back to normal. Then we do the same with rents, see what that was do the same with taxes. And what that allows us to see is which one of those levers has more power. Which one of those is going to have more impact? Maybe it's taxes, right? So we want to have a really good tax strategy because that's one of the first places where we could overachieve. We're still coming up with the number of 80,000 a door. And if the seller isn't willing to sell at 80 a door, we're not going to buy it. But if they were, and we came to an agreement, then as we begin to execute, we can try to hit these other targets 
And if we do it intelligently, we can turn these into $100,000 units. And that's part of how we make our value. But we have to buy the asset at a price that we know makes sense for what is more than likely to happen. Not just 50-50, but it's got to be more likely. It's got to be 60-40, 70-30, or 80-20. It's got to be in that range so that we can have greater confidence that we're going to be able to achieve these uh, numbers. So guard against chasing the underwrite. If you are a passive investor looking to invest with sponsors, it's always great to ask them, tell me about your underwriting process and how do you do it? So you might be listening for some of the kinds of things that we talked about uh, this week. If you're doing your own work and building your own portfolio, uh, be cautious. Uh, one of the things that's a w great way to do it is make sure you have a partner. It doesn't need to be a financial partner. It could be somebody that just works with you that can go through the underwrite and challenge you. Our team does that. Whoever puts the underwrite together, the other people on the team, their job is to go through and just shoot holes in it because that allows us to come up with very real concrete inputs because it's very natural to chase the underwrite and you want to guard against that. So hope you found that valuable this week. Please be sure and join us next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poland.